Welcome to episode 19 of the Play Like a Champion show, a podcast from Play Like a Champion today. I'm Pete Piscatello. I'm joined by Kristen Sheehan. Before we get into today's interview with our special guest, a little housekeeping. If you missed any of our previous 18 episodes, be sure to go back and take a listen. We've talked to some amazing folks and I think you'll really enjoy those interviews. You can find Play Like a Champion show in all your favorite podcasting services, whether that's Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, any of the others out there. Please be sure you click the subscribe button so that you're alerted to new episodes as they're released. And if your favorite podcast app allows, we'd appreciate a rate and review. That allows others to more easily find the show. Finally, don't forget social media. We'd love to connect and interact with you at PLC, the number four character on Twitter and Instagram, at Play Like a Champion on Facebook, and visit our website, www.playlikeachampion.org. There you can find resources and connections to everything we do. Our guest here on episode 19 is Roy Kessel. Roy is the founder of the Sports Philanthropy Network. He'll join us in just a moment to talk about his work, but first, it's always great to welcome Kristen Sheehan back to the show. Kristen, what's new with you? Hey, Pete, and hey to all our listeners. You know, just getting ready for Valentine's Day, Pete. It's that time of the year. Got to make sure that uh, you have plans in place for that special someone, although, again, in the midst of COVID, uh, maybe not as active uh, as as. Valentine's Days have been in the past for a lot of people. That's right. Just more carrying food. <laughs> That's true. We're all getting very good at carryout. That's right. <laughs> well, let's bring our guest in. I would like to introduce Roy Kessel, who is the founder of the Sports Philanthropy Network. Roy, welcome to our podcast. Thank you for having me on the show. Excited to be here. Yeah, it was a great day in October when you and I had the opportunity to have a really pleasant phone conversation following the Project Play conference where we met, um, where people of like minds meet to say, how can we make the sports world better? And uh, then got a chance to connect our two organizations and have enjoyed uh, following your great uh, program ever since. And um, we're going to get into that in a minute here. But first, why don't you tell us a little bit about the role sport played in your life when you were growing up? So that's uh, probably a long story. I was always involved in sports. That was my passion from the very outset in terms of what I was interested in. Uh, you'd have to go to school, but really you just bide your time through the day to get to recess so you could play sport and to get to after school so you could play sport. Um, along the way, as I was growing up, I played uh, most of the sports that were around, soccer, baseball, you know, pickup football games, uh, tennis, a little bit of golf growing up. But uh outdoor just skating outside playing hockey so it was something you did pretty much every day after school and then you would have your organized activities uh, as well um as i progressed through into high school uh i played a lot of soccer and, and tennis in high school and then during college uh, a whole variety of sports intramural sports taught tennis and and then as i moved uh 
into my professional career, continued to play and, and still do, at least up till COVID, hockey and softball and, and soccer, tennis and golf. So uh, it's been a big part of my life, both personally and professionally. Well, and on that professional note, you are the founder of Sports Philanthropy Network, as Kristen mentioned. Share with our listeners the history behind the network's founding. Tell us what the mission is and, and the vision for the organization. Sure. So the the mission as a nonprofit for Sports Philanthropy Network is to build stronger, healthier, and more inclusive communities through sport. Um, we work with three primary constituencies, which would be sports organizations, which consists of teams, leagues, governing bodies, and associations. Number two would be athlete and athlete foundations. And number three would be community-based sports nonprofits. Uh, the genesis behind it was really work that I had done previously uh, in the sports business world. Uh, I had been certified by the NFLPA to represent players, did that for a while, worked with a lot of entrepreneurs in startup sports business ventures, and then taught at Northwestern in their sports graduate sports management program, as well as chairing the Chicago Bar Association Sports Law Committee. So I've seen sports from a lot of different angles. And one thing that came across to me consistently was that the athletes were conditioned to believe that they really should focus on four things when they're not part of the competition, and that those are the things that for them consists of giving back to the community. And those four things are number one, signing autographs, number two, taking photos, number three, playing in golf outings, and finally participating in fundraising dinners. And really that's a gross disservice to the athletes. They have so many skills and abilities uh, an incredible opportunity for them to give back to the community and a great desire to do that. So it really came to the front for me um, back in the late 90s when I was putting together uh, celebrity and charity golf events for different organizations. Did one for the Tournament of Roses out in Pasadena for the NFL Coaches Association and for some casinos and alumni associations, other groups. So I had a chance to see these athletes participating in the events and having a good time, of course, because if you're out at a golf outing, what, what's not to enjoy unless you have bad weather. But they really were looking for more. How can we make more of an impact? What can we do beyond just showing up and being a celebrity? And that was the genesis behind the Sports Philanthropy Network of creating uh, a mechanism in a group that could help support those efforts, could help find collaboration partners for the athletes, because I feel that many of them are led to believe incorrectly that their best way to contribute is to start their own foundation. And that's true really only for a very small percentage of the athletes. Most of them are better served working with an existing organization or running their own fundraising events, but having the resources that are raised go towards different organizations. Uh, we've seen over the years many athletes who want to do things, and they're just not given the support, the education, um, the resources to be effective at running their own foundation. And frankly, for most of them, that's not what their passion is. They want to give back. 
but their passion is not about necessarily building and, and running a foundation. And so they get uh, information and they get a direction sometimes from agents, sometimes from financial advisors that they absolutely have to have a foundation. Um, and we found that that's not really accurate. They can be an enormous support for existing organizations and it's often a better fit for the athletes. And so our function as we look at it is to help publicize the great work that's going on in this sector and to create an array of education and professional development programs, things in the nature of workshops, trainings, webinars, seminars, and then our signature event that's called Sports Philanthropy World. Which takes us to our next question. And uh, that was, I had the opportunity to attend your 2020 conference, which of course was held virtually uh, in 2020. And it featured really incredible speakers uh, from the world of sport. Uh, tell us just a little more about your the evolution of your conference and how that supports your mission with the network. So we're still relatively new as an organization. Um, our second birthday is coming up here at the end of January. Um, our goal has been to bring people together, to foster collaborations, to provide some of the support and education as, as you discussed. The conference started in 2019 in Chicago. Um, we were a brand new organization with an event nobody had heard of, and we still had 120 organizations participating in the event and 30 speakers from around the country. And so that was a great start. And we were looking to build on that for, for 2020 uh, until COVID hit. And we were scheduled at the end of June of 2020. And people kept saying, no problem, you're going to be fine. This will all blow over and, and everybody will be available for your conference. And obviously, we all know that was not the case. But as, as we progressed through, people kept asking for updates. And I said, uh, I went to the Dr. Fauci line and, and basically used that and said, the virus will decide, right? There's nothing that Roy is going to decide. There's nothing Roy can do to make this conference happen or not in terms of people being willing to travel. So we, we didn't go ahead with a live conference in June, and then we sort of decided to evaluate the best way for us to make an impact in 2020. So right when COVID hit, we launched an array of webinars and, and podcasts. So we were doing three podcasts a week. We were doing three webinars a week all the way through April and May. And so it's a fairly hectic production schedule. That led into our town hall on racism and reform that was at the beginning of July. And then after that was completed and we had a great response, we decided that we still wanted to do sports philanthropy world and we evaluated different virtual platforms and held that at the end of October. Um, unfortunately, when you look at the landscape right now, we believe that live events are not going to be feasible for most of 2021 either. So we are planning another virtual event similar to the one that we had in 2020, and that will be at the end of June. Well, you talked a little bit about how COVID has impacted you, and certainly through the conference and the other events that, that you guys did to support uh, the industry. I'd like to hear a little bit more and ask you to expand on how it's affected sort of the sports industry and, and sports philanthropy as a whole 
because I think there's been really a dramatic effect on on everybody involved throughout the uh, the last I guess year. No doubt, the effect has been dramatic. I think we went through a few stages of the response to COVID. So when everything shut down in March, uh, I think the first 30 to 60 days was almost a uh, a shutdown. People froze. They didn't know what to do. Part of the reason we decided to run so much content in terms of webinars and podcasts was there was a big gap to fill. Uh, after May, people started thawing out from that and, and looking ahead and trying to decide, okay, well, this is going to be here for a while. What can we do? I still think a lot of organizations felt that they would be able to run quote unquote regular programming after Labor Day, which clearly was was not the case. And so we've seen a quite an influx of high level programming that's being done online. The challenge for the organizations from a grassroots level is how they are able to engage and interact with the the kids that they serve, with the youth that they serve. The technology limitations have been substantial. Many families have multiple kids going to school on a computer. Um, The bandwidth may not be sufficient for all the kids. Uh, For parents, they might need to work from home. And even if the bandwidth is sufficient, they may not have enough hardware, enough laptops or Chromebooks or whatever they need to use to get online. Uh, I, I think the other area where it's really hit hard is that sports, by its nature, is about competition, which we then are missing. And it's also about being active and engaging with people directly. And so it's very difficult to sit at a computer all day for class, and then your quote-unquote recreation is another series of activities that's being done on something like Zoom, where uh, there's been some very creative efforts to engage kids virtually, but it's not the same, and uh, it, it may be better than doing, it certainly is better than doing nothing, but it's certainly not at the level of getting people together in person and getting people really moving around and active. Wow. You, you sure hit the nail on the head there. And, you know, like you said, we want kids to be active, but there is, there is that fatigue around this. And also just the the trauma of all that young people are going through and adults are experiencing with the losses and the challenges of being physically separated. And I know for us, uh, you know, we're going to put a big emphasis on our future education for coaches on how to understand trauma, particular to, you know, the COVID situation. Um, And so, you know, besides the uh, pandemic of COVID, uh, 2020 also made our world very aware of another pandemic uh, plaguing our country, and that is racism. Um, And certainly the sports world, took that on with athletes uh, raising awareness of racial injustice. And I know that you care deeply about that. Your network does. And you mentioned um, that you did a session to address racism. Can you tell us more uh, about what you did for that? Absolutely. The, as you identified, this is something that's been going on for far too long in our society. 
And so the, the issues of racism and equality and equity and inclusion are things that have been central to my life literally from birth. My parents are both originally from South Africa. They left when they first got married in 1963 because they were anti-apartheid and did not want to live nor raise kids in that environment. And so they moved to Israel, which is where I was born. Um, they ended up coming to Madison, Wisconsin when I was less than three because my dad was uh, getting his PhD. And then I had a younger sister who was born while he was studying, uh, who's developmentally disabled. And so when Sharon was born, that really changed the trajectory of life and what we were going to do. But if you take those three elements and put them together, you see that literally for my whole life, you've been dealing with racism and apartheid in South Africa, with the Middle East conflict and anti-Semitism in Israel, and with disabilities and things through my sister and uh, watching her develop and grow. And so I think those are things that really informed the work that I'm doing now and, and set that as, as a stage. Going back directly to the work that you're talking about on, on the racism in, in this country, it's crazy to me when we look back and, and say Brown versus Board of Education is almost almost 70 years ago. And we're still dealing with some of these issues of discrimination that are there. They're real. They can't be taken away. And our experience as whites can't mimic uh, and, and we can't even understand what happens in some of those environments because it's truly incomprehensible. And if you haven't been through it and haven't spent time really talking to people that have experienced those challenges, it's it's difficult to know. So one of the things we did last summer is we held a big town hall on racism and reform, and we had panels that included former NFL players and other professional athletes, athletic directors, sports business leaders, um, people from colleges and universities. Our goal was to open up the conversation. What that led into was a report that we put out simultaneous with the town hall that captured all of the statements on racism that every professional sports franchise put out in, in the wake of the incidents uh, early last summer. We've got that report. That's something that's up in our current group of interns are working with us now to go through the materials and evaluate how each of those organizations have lived up to what their claims were, right, coming up on a year. This summer will be coming up on a year. And I think that what's important is the need for action. There's plenty of talk. There's plenty of discussion. We can flip on any TV station uh, around and see it coming up, right? On a sports lens, you can see it on ESPN or FS1. You can put on CNN or Fox News or anywhere else. These are issues that are discussed every day, but what's being done in the communities. And so that's one of the task forces that we're launching here in the first quarter of 2021, uh, along with other special interest task forces that are going to look and evaluate how do we really implement things and make a difference. And so racism being one issue, 
Some of the other issues would include mental health, LGBTQ, adaptive sports, social justice, and, and more. So our view is that we are a perfect platform to let people come together, have this dialogue, but more importantly, work together to create change because any one organization on its own is not in a position to make that change. Oh, well said, Roy. Gosh, thank you for your leadership in this area. And, you know, we're working to, to do something um, in this area too. We, we're in the middle of a three-part webinar series on race and it's three parts was the first part was listen. So we listen to stories of racism Part two was educate so that we could educate our, our listeners, our community about the, the reality and the terminology. And then part three, which will happen in February, culminating in Black History Month, is act. Because as you point out, we're not going to make any change if we just keep listening. We got to act to change. And so we look to have some really tangible, intentional ways the youth and high school sport community can act um, in their own communities and also then collectively to combat racism. Um, so I'll be looking to, uh, to your resources to assist us in that regard too. And not only do you have resources on DEI, but you've got a number of really valuable uh, resources on your website. You have COVID-19 resources, which link to at-home workouts, which are so helpful to families. Um, there, you have health and safety resources. Um, you have sports access resources. It's just a lot of really incredible information. It's amazing what you've been able to put together in two years. And kudos and congratulations to you. Um, how have you gotten all these things together? I mean, the the volume is is amazing. And um, maybe also just give us a glimpse into some of those other resource pages that we haven't yet discussed. Sure. Well, I appreciate the kind words. And uh, again, this is something that's been in, in my mind in terms of organizing and thinking about for a long time. And the timing was right as we launched this uh, going into the Super Bowl week in Atlanta two years ago. Um, we've had the good fortune of connecting with amazing people around the country and around the world that are doing incredible work in, in their communities. And as I see it, our role is to help provide resources and make it easier for people to find the tools that they need to find the resources, the collaboration partners that help them succeed. So um, certainly it's not anything that, that's done alone. There have been a lot of people uh, contributing to that. Uh, our VP of Community Development, Caleb Bradham, has been with me from the beginning, working on this for the last two years. And then uh, in an interesting way, last year with COVID, opened up doors for us to do things in a different way that may have really accelerated our growth because people were more open to a virtual platform, more open to a virtual conference and, and virtual events, and more open to working and interning virtually. So we didn't need to have everybody be in Chicago and, and be coming and meeting me at Panera or somewhere else to sit down for an hour and, and go through a few things. Everybody now is, is fairly comfortable doing it remotely. And so, as you said, what we've done is compile things on our three primary initiatives. So number one, that's health and safety. Number two, sports access. And number three is diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so underneath each of those initiatives are several 
key elements. So for health and safety, we're talking about heart screenings, we're talking about concussions, we're talking about mental health, we're looking at athlete abuse types of issues, which are, again, all too significant right now. Uh, on the sports access, that consists of everything from payment of participation fees to collecting and distributing sports equipment to providing training and access to sports facilities, as well as opportunities to attend sporting events and tickets to events like that. And diversity, equity, and inclusion is really fairly broad and looks at a lot of the things we've talked about previously. Uh, when you look at racism, when you look at the social justice uh, issues relating to women and the opportunities for young girls to play sports, LGBTQ, adaptive sports, uh, so, so many groups like that. And so our view is sports should be an equalizer. Not everybody's going to be equal in their level of athletic talent, but we absolutely need to work harder to make the opportunities equal and let people try different sports, let people have the chance to play and not be excluded uh, due to economic reasons, not be excluded due to geographic reasons or based on uh, gender or anything else. Well, in addition to those resources, you mentioned this earlier, but you also have a podcast uh, on your website and have done a number of terrific interviews with some real leaders in sport and some of the folks who are involved in uh, moving forward. Some of the things that you've, you've talked about here. Uh, tell us about that podcast. What is it that you like about podcasting as a platform? And you know what's the goal of your podcast? Maybe even tell us some of the guests you've had on and how that's been helpful to the mission of your organization. Sure. We, we've been fortunate to have some great guests on. Um, we just launched season four of the Sports Philanthropy podcast now. So for we, we've probably had um, over 100 and some episodes for the Sports Philanthropy podcast uh, going back to right to the beginning. And what, what I love about it is we now are interacting and engaging with people on a number of levels. So we have two episodes of the Sports Philanthropy Podcast come out each week. And Caleb Bradham um, last year added the Legacy After the Locker Room podcast, where she talks and interviews athletes directly about their impact in the community. For me, podcasting as a platform has been an amazing opportunity to interact and engage with people. We look at how we communicate in society these days, and it's done typically in very short snippets, uh, either through social media, through email, even if you think about being at a typical event, networking event, fundraiser, golf outing, you're rarely sitting down with somebody and having a 35 to 45 minute conversation with them about their background, about the work they're doing, about what's important to them in their life. And so having that opportunity to learn about these organizations and hear the passion that is there. Uh, when we started, frequently one of the first things that was expressed to me was that the guests were concerned that they wouldn't be able to fill up 35 or 45 minutes of conversation 
about their organization and they wanted things scripted. So I started with some scripts and very quickly moved away from that because I found that really what was interesting was to let them talk and to follow up on the issues that were raised. And I've never had anybody yet who hasn't been able to fill up that time. Uh, typically, the result is the exact opposite. We'll get through 45 minutes and somebody will uh, say, I can't believe how fast it went. Uh, but I love that opportunity to dive in depth because I feel that's something that's really missing in, in most of our conversations these days. Wow, very good. Yeah, your your podcasts are are very interesting. So I like that free flow of exchange in the conversation. That that really works well. Um, so another area that we wanted to discuss with you, Roy, is that over the last um, ten to fifteen years, uh, we've seen that the youth sports world has become more and more increasingly a pay to play culture. Um, in fact, youth sports have become an industry worth estimated somewhere around $20 billion or even more. And with the proliferation of travel teams that often charge very exorbitant fees for children to participate, families are stretching the resources to get their kids involved on these teams. And then all while that is happening, this causes a flight from local recreational leagues, leaving many children from neighborhoods that are not as well-resourced, um, not only sidelined, but out of the game completely. Play Like a Champion, uh, we advocate for a team for every child, and we're working in neighborhoods of concentrated poverty to address the dearth of sports for children in these neighborhoods. Can you share your thoughts on the pay-to-play system and the social structure that seems to be really dominating our youth sports in America today? I'm happy to share those thoughts. I'm not sure everybody will be happy to hear those thoughts, but the problem that I see is that the, the pay-to-play has excluded so many people and that it really starts, in my view, at a much too early stage in, in athletes' careers. Uh, when I was growing up, and again, I'm 55, uh, it was a different environment. When I started playing soccer at U8, that was considered very young. And was one of Madison was one of the few places around the country where there was a lot of youth soccer at at an early age back in the in the early seventies. But you look around now, my son started playing at four and played in Park District here in the Chicago suburbs, um, was doing well. My daughter played from an early age as well. But fairly soon people started drifting out of the park district leagues into travel leagues. Uh, at a point that I think is much too young, both for, for the athlete and their development, uh, as well as for the, the cost of, of doing that before a kid has really been able to identify their interest level. So the concern to me comes from two things. The cost is, is a big concern, and that's one that's easy to identify. When you look around the Chicago suburbs, um, I think travel soccer is typically going to cost you three to $5,000 a year when you figure in all of the expenses. The people that are playing travel hockey, it's probably eight to 12,000. You've got lacrosse and baseball that are probably somewhere in the middle of those. That Those are significant investments for kids to play when they're eight, nine, 10 years old. Uh, my view has always been that the travel sports should really start in middle school it should be a way to give kids an opportunity to try different sports, play different sports, 
and see where their interests develop, where their skill lies. Because if you start trying to identify in first grade and second grade, it's often based more on a child's genetic growth pattern in terms of how big they are, how mature they are at that really, really early stage than where their interest level might be. And so you tend to see far too much sport-specific decision-making at an early age, which ends up leading to burnout. It ends up, ends up leading to overuse injuries in sport. And so those are things that are detrimental for the long-term health of the athlete and also for the long-term interest in the sport. Too many kids now are conditioned to believe that if they're not going to be playing high school sports, then they should stop playing that sport really, really early on. And what I think is challenging about that, and it was brought to a, a well-stated point at the Project Play Summit in 2019 by Tim Shriver, Special Olympics, he said, we don't walk up to Johnny or Susie in in second grade and look at them and say, Johnny, you know, you're really not good with numbers. So we're just going to stop teaching you math right now because you should go focus on something else. And Susie, your reading just is not up to par. So we're just going to stop teaching you to read and write. We, we think you need to focus on a different direction. And it sounds absurd in the context of academics, but that's really what we're doing in the context of sports. And it's detrimental to the long-term level of activity that kids have throughout middle school and high school is detrimental to the level of activity people have as they go through college and, and into adulthood because they haven't maintained their role as a sport participant unless they viewed themselves as a high-level athlete going into high school. That is so well said and unfortunately a big problem. I know we hope that that tide is shifting a little bit, folks like you and and work you've done, and certainly it's something we promote and, and folks we talk to really getting a better understanding of some of the issues that you just addressed and hopefully making changes and taking action. We've talked a lot about taking action so that we, we can help provide a better environment for today's kids and, and kids in future generations. Well, Roy, we've, we've really enjoyed getting a chance to sit down and talk to you here today. Uh, and we'll get you out of here with just a couple more questions. First, I'm curious, kind of on a, on a fun level, and I know this could be a hard question, but I'm curious what your favorite part or maybe one or two favorite parts of the position as director of the Sports Philanthropy Network are. Uh, before we hopped on here, we talked about uh, the opportunity you have to go to some really awesome events, uh, things like you know activities around the Super Bowl and Senior Bowl and things like that. Uh, but what is it that you enjoy most about your your role and, and the organization you've created? What really lights me up and, and gives me a lot of pleasure every single day is talking to organizations like yourself, like so many people. I spend most of my day every day on the phone uh, with different organizations every half hour to hour, hearing their stories about the work that they're doing in the community, hearing the passion. And these are people not only in the United States, but around the world. Uh, we had 30 countries represented at Sports Philanthropy Year world this year. Um, 
We had over 430 people representing 320 some organizations. So there, there's an enormous number of people out there doing incredible work. And, and I'm continually in awe at, at people that started organizations, scratched and clawed to get them off the ground. And where I see the need is how can we help them? How can we be a resource and make them more efficient, make it easier? So if Peter and Kristen decide we want to start an organization, you're not starting literally from scratch, uh, which is what we see all too often. Somebody has a passion for a particular sport, be it baseball, soccer, tennis, hockey, doesn't matter what the sport is. And they start with the sport-specific programming, and then they decide that they want to add content. They want to add value to help develop better people through sports, not just build elite athletes. And so many times they're looking for ideas. How do they run a leadership development program, financial literacy, STEM education, uh, reading, any type of concept that they're going through. And we see those elements being incorporated into every single organization and using every single sport. So over the course of time, we've seen virtually any sport you can think of participating in, in some of our events from ultimate frisbee to MMA to beach volleyball to surfing to wrestling and everything you can think of. And so getting the opportunity to learn and experience what those groups are doing and see what challenges they're facing and then you know, using our resources from a sports business perspective to say, how can we help? What's the best way we can support this community? Well, that is a beautiful thing. Roy, again, thanks for joining us. Uh, we're going to put information, certainly your website. We'll put a link to your podcast in our show notes, all of that good stuff. But before we go, let listeners know how they can learn more about the Sports Philanthropy Network, how they can connect with you. Um, share that with our listeners, please. Sure. I, I'm pretty easy to find personally under my name on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, anywhere that you want to do that. Sportsphilanthropynetwork.org is the website. As Kristen said, there's a lot of resources on there uh, for all kinds of different areas. If there's something that you don't see that interests you, let us know because we can probably help you find that and, and make a connection. And we appreciate learning about new organizations. That's the way that we get referrals for people to be guests on our podcast. We hope you'll come and participate in some of our programs. We have an executive director mastermind that's getting ready to launch. Um, we're going to be part of the Million Coach Challenge, and we're going to have our Sports Philanthropy World Conference at the end of June. So there's many ways to get involved and would love to hear from you. Roy, such a pleasure to have you on our show. Good luck with all that you're doing, and thank you for your leadership in this space. Well, thank you for having us on. We really enjoyed the opportunity to share our story and to be able to uh, engage with your audience. Thank you. Kristen, great conversation today with Roy Kessel about his work and the Sports Philanthropy Network. What were your takeaways? I know we're both really impressed by the work that he's done. You know, running a nonprofit ourselves, we're very aware of the challenges and, you know, just the the 
depth of his information and the resources and the connections he's made is really impressive. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just incredibly impressed by what he has to offer. Yeah, and in only just a couple of years of this particular endeavor, the Sports Philanthropy Network, uh, really, really great stuff. So be sure to check them out. Uh, as I mentioned before, we'll put their information in the show notes. Really great work there. Well, we want to thank everyone for joining us here as we wrap up another episode of the Play Like a Champion show. Remember, you can download and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Do that now and go back and listen to all 18 previous episodes after you're done with this one if you haven't already. Some great interviews out there, some awesome people who are changing the world of sports. You can also connect to us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Visit our website, playlikeachampion.org. You can find those links and tons of resources that can help you and your organization. If you'd like to email us to learn more or ask any questions for the podcast or otherwise, information at playlikeachampion.org is the address. Don't hesitate to get in contact with us. Kristen, thanks as always for being here. I look forward to our next episode. Thanks, Pete, and thanks to all of our listeners for joining. Have a great week, everyone, and wherever you are, remember to play like a champion each and every day. Thank you.